The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Well, the place looks friendly enough. Not for everybody. Yeah, they're just getting ready. For what? The propaganda arm of the AQMD has got to be freaking out that the smokers are going to raid again. Well, the guards at the checkpoint call that dead guy a smoker. Must be some pretty nasty folks. Depends on who you ask. The uh, AQMD says they're outlaw bikers. They won't give up their machines, so they've got a bounty on their head. Sounds like the Old West. Yeah, on the bus told me that internal combustion engines were banned about a year ago. Some kind of clean air act? Mm -hmm. What about the bus? No private car ownership. Apparently, you can timeshare one of the government's hydro wagons if you don't mind an eight-month waiting list. Well, it's called Kincaid Petra. They have oil. What do they do with it? Paints, plastics, cosmetics. Salad dressing? <laughs> Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, December 1st, 2022. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Robert and I have long held that if individual freedom and prosperity for mankind should ever be realized, it will be thanks to the principles and philosophy enshrined in the collective works of Ayn Rand. On past broadcasts of this show, I've often cited Rand's collections of essays entitled The New Left, The Anti-Industrial Revolution, as providing a perfect description, both in terms of cause and consequence, of what we are experiencing today. And today's guest, Salim Mansour, joined Robert in a lively and entertaining conversation spanning a myriad of issues raised by that particular collection of essays. Their entire discussion is available on Just Right's various video platform channels, and on today's broadcast, the focus of the discussion is primarily around the insanity of the left in stopping oil and pursuing a myriad of so-called green agendas, which are all the actions of a death cult, because Mother Nature is out to kill us, and naturalism is unnatural for humans. It all gets underway right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to financially support the show with a donation or contribution. Because, as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. We're joined by our regular guest, Professor Salim Mansur, Professor Emeritus at uh, Western University in London, Ontario. And today we're going to be discussing a little bit of a broad topic. We're going to be discussing the left. And what prompted this was Salim's rereading of an essay by Ayn Rand in her book, Ayn Rand, The New Left, The Anti-Industrial Revolution, also re-released as Return of the Primitive. And there's one essay in that that sort of encapsulates, describes perfectly 
what we've been witnessing, even though it was written back in January of 1970. And that is a comparison of the people on the right to the god Apollo and the people on the left to the god Dionysus. The god Apollo, of course, is the god of, um, you could just encapsulate it as say, reason. And the god Dionysus is, of course, Bacchus, the god of wine, the god of insanity, quite literally the god of insanity and chaos and randomness, and that she denotes to the left. And so, Salim, why don't, why don't we discuss uh, some of the most current events, and particularly I'm looking at the absolute insanity, especially in Britain, of the, uh, the climate change groups, Extinction Rebellion, uh, Stop Oil, splashing paint on priceless works of art in uh, national galleries and uh, getting away with it. The rule of law is not seen, you know, upheld. And all of this to stop oil, the very lifeblood of a civilized, modern lifestyle. If you, if you go back um, 100 years before oil, maybe about 120, it was horse and buggy. People starved. People froze. And they want to go back to that time. And the left, as Rand would point out, is a culture of death, of um, not living on this earth. And in her essay, Apollo and Dionysus, she compares Apollo 11, when she wrote it, it was December of 69, uh, January of 70, just months after she personally witnessed the launch of Apollo 11 and the heights and the ecstasy of man as a rational being compared that to the, the events of August of 69, which of course was the Woodstock concert, where you had hundreds of thousands of young men and women wallowing in mud like pigs. And that um, event was exalted by the press as some sort of cultural revolution, while the Apollo 11 in the press, again, we always go back to the press, don't we, Celine? <laughs> Apollo 11 was like, oh, well, wouldn't it be a shame if they failed, you know, or this is just a one-off, you know, that kind of a thing. It was, it was marginalized and forgotten. So, Salim, tell us, why read that book right now, and what can we get from this book 50 years later? Well, uh, the whole issue that we are confronting over these last couple of decades, but which has accelerated with the return of the Obama administration in terms of Biden, you know, the third term of Obama administration, and the the push, the accelerated push, which includes even the war in Ukraine that is at this moment going on, of the West against Russia, of the collective West against Russia, NATO and the European Union fully are behind this war led by the United States. All of this raise the question how so swiftly and so maddeningly how can we bring this where we are this new green deal the totality of it the whole globalist agenda going back to the earth summit in 1992 uh, man-made global warming uh, the carbon dioxide is a poison that we have to reach a net zero and so on and so forth. So we're looking back at this entire period and how can we encapsulate it and present it? And my mind 
again, the subconscious works in its own mysterious way without getting into Freudian analysis over your or issue. So, told me that there's something basically fundamentally primitive in all of this. This malady, this profound sickness that has overtaken the Western man. I mean, it's not coming from the country or the civilization that I left behind, right? From India. It's not coming from China. It's not coming from any of those third world countries that we talk about, you know, less advanced, less modernized, less technologically in terms of all that modernity represents in terms of science, technology, and so on and so forth. It's not coming from there. It is the collective madness that is sweeping across the West. And maybe, perhaps, maybe we are reaching an end point of it, you know, and maybe the pendulum will start swinging back. But how to explain it? And there, the word primitive triggered in my mind Ayn Rand's book, you know. So I reached into my library, and there it was. I had it. I picked my copy up, again, as an undergraduate student in in Toronto now, 45-plus years ago, and I read Ayn Rand. But going back, and I read, and we read this, The Return of the Primitive. And it was astounding. Rand had written that uh, essay sometime... In the late 60s or early 70s, I again, I don't have the date right now in my head. And everything that she writes about is what we are living through. This is not a new debate. That's what then led me to go back and read even further. And that's the essay that you have now cited, Apollo and Dionysus. And that archetype characteristic of the two Greek gods. I mean, both Apollo and Dionysus were the sons of Zeus from two different mothers. And Apollo, the archetype of the man or the individual, the person who is reasonable, who's rational, who puts reason at the top of his priority. The world is a place which is reasonably constructed, rationally constructed by nature. It is about a man or a god who is prudent and who celebrates, most important, who celebrates and who represents order in the cosmology. It is not chaos. It is not randomness. It is order. And order has so many different features to it, you know. Order is about discipline, about prioritizing, about setting things in a proper framework. It is hard work to construct an order. And of course, you know, in Greek architecture, you see that the Apollonian feature in the Greek, the pantheon with the columns. And when you see buildings, you know, I mean, you go to Washington and you see the architecture of Washington, the capital, it is Apollonian. It is, you know, the, ge- the geometry, the columns, the, the features have all sets that this capital of this new world, of this new republic, based upon constitutional order, is reaching back to reclaim what first began in Greece, in Parthenon, in Athens. You know. And so that is the archetype that through Apollo we celebrate. And then there's the archetype, again, the brother of Apollo, or half-brother of Apollo, the son of Zeus, who represents the complete opposite, the antithesis 
of what Apollo represents in terms of order, reason, rationality, and the work that goes into it, that is the discipline, the toil, the work. This character of the Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses represents chaos, represents irrationality, represents insanity. But in that delirious frame of mind through celebration of the Bacchanalia, the Feast of Bacchanalia, wine drinking, intoxication, where an individual completely basically strips himself and becomes part of what the individual imagines is nature, chaos, darkness, ultimately death, you know, or the dissolution of everything that is constructed by the hard work of bringing order into a situation of chaos. So it is in this two archetype feature that we are all, in a sense, trapped. We carry that. And what are we celebrating? And I found that this is a Truly a fascinating, I mean, what Ayn Rand wrote 50 years ago is even more remarkable today if we pause and think about it. And this whole new Green Deal is the work of the Dionysian man. It's not the work of the Apollo man. And, and so in that essay that she presents this contradiction, this immense tension at work is again beautifully laid out. In her novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, she's challenged some of the most fundamental beliefs of modern man, beliefs which most of us hold. She is an advocate of reason, individualism, and complete free enterprise. Ms. Rand, you are certainly uh, one of our most controversial social critics, novelists. Who, in your estimation, is the best living writer in the world today? The best living writer from the aspect of originality, imagination, color, sense of drama, and above all, magnificent plot structure, and a writer who has been treated most unjustly by the alleged literati is Mickey Spillane. We knew that's what Ayn Rand thought, and that's why we've invited both of them tonight, Ayn Rand and Mickey Spillane. His Mike Hammer mystery stories, while being attacked by the critics, have sold more than 70 million copies around the world. In the United States, Mickey Spillane has written seven of the ten bestsellers of the 20th century. Why does Ayn Rand consider him the best living writer in the world today? Tonight on PMEs, we'll get the answer to that and other questions from Ayn Rand and Mickey Spillane. No two writers would seem to be more different. Miss Rand takes about seven years, seven years, to write a novel. Mr. Spillane writes his in two or three weeks. Ms. Rand writes about architects and scientists, philosophers and businessmen. Mr. Spillane writes about cops and robbers, private eyes, and their girls. Mickey, before we ask Ayn Rand why she thinks that you're the best living writer in the world, let me ask you about your own view of your own writing. You've called your detective hero, Mike Hammer, a state of mind, the most satisfactory character you could imagine. Why? What's so satisfactory about Mike Hammer? Right now, Mike's hard work has enabled me to support a nice, large family. And uh, to me, he's satisfactory in that respect anyway. But there must be something about the fact of Mike Hammer himself, more than the fact that he sells books for you in conjunction with his various lady companions. Well, I can take out a lot of what they call uh, hidden antagonism, I guess, on uh, things of the world I don't approve of, using old Mike as the hammer. 
Are you Mike Hammer? Is he your personal image of what you'd like to be? No, he's a state of mind. I told you that. You know, funny enough, I never, I never described this man. And everybody has a, his own singular image of Mike. You know, I can't, I can't say that, that you have ever described him in, in great detail. Uh, how does he contrast with most people whom you see around you in your daily life, Nicky? Oh, he isn't like them. This is a hero. And as Ann said one day, he's the last of the public heroes. But he's a man who refuses to be taken down. I never, I never like to see him pushed too far without the explosion coming. He's a man who's definite in his approach to what he's doing. Takes no nonsense. He's determined and he's dedicated. And uh, with a character like that, you can pull up a good story. And there are no people around you today who are dedicated and who go after what they want and get what they want? No, there are people. There are people. Oh, yeah. They're around. But you got to dig them out. About uh, two, three weeks ago, Mickey, I was at a social gathering. Ayn Rand was there. You arrived a little bit late, and you greeted her with the following words. You said, it's good to see there are other giants in the valley. What does that mean? Who are giants, and what kind are other people? Oh, the giants are those who are determined to get what they're going after. So many people today, are they're herded, they're shoved around, they... They will fight back. They take this attitude that you can't fight City Hall. And to me, I, I can't stand that. You can fight City Hall if you want to push. You can't stand around and just be, just let yourself be one of a mob that goes this way and goes that way. Somebody cracks a whip and you go. And uh, I find it ends like that, too. She's not going to be pushed around. She's determined to push herself, if necessary, to get what she, what she thinks is a definite object in life. Yes. Sure. We've gotten some view of Mickey Spillane's idea of a hero. Uh, what is yours? In essence, my idea of the hero is the same as Mickey's, except that every concrete is different. The details are different, but what counts in literature is the essence, that which distinguishes the person from all other persons or characters. So my idea of a hero, such as John Gold, is a man who acts on his own judgment, who is an independent, sovereign consciousness. He selects his goals. He selects them rationally. He is confident of his own rightness, and he pursues his goals. If I were to sum up in one proper abstraction what Mickey was saying and what I am saying, his type of hero and mine have one crucial human attribute, self-esteem. July 1969, Apollo takes off. And, and Apollo, the very name for the ship, the rocket that is going to carry the astronaut is Apollo. That is behind the ship that is carrying Neil Armstrong and his other two co-astronauts to the moon is the hardware, the toil of man at the epic of reason and rationality. It is order. It is science. You know, nothing there is left to chance. It is precision. It is to be precision means to be extremely disciplined. And all the subject, the technology demands, mathematics, physics, uh, engineering, is all precise and hard work. This is the very emblematic 
symbol of where the Western man has arrived at in terms of science and technology and philosophy, that now he can escape the earth and head to the stars, that's to the moon. And if it is not precise, if it is not carefully crafted, it will all blow up. And so the journey of Neil Armstrong carries the whole weight of a civilization of reason and rationality and achievement. And then a month later, there is Woodstock, a total chaos, as you said, something like half a million people descended on a farming village in New York, up upstate New York. And it's total craziness, you know. And who are they? On the one side, the people who worked the Apollo project and who then took the project to moon, that is Neil Armstrong and others, they belong to a generation that Ayn Rand herself can identify. This is the generation that came of age after World War I. They came of age between the two world wars. They went to war in World War II. They fought and won. They came back. They're the one now in the literature, people talk about the greatest generation. And you look back, you look back at the leadership in the West at that time in history, President Kennedy, whose tragic death in 1963 marked again the descent into madness that will come. But President Kennedy represented that generation, you know. It was his call that before the decade is out, man will go to the moon. No man can fully grasp how far and how fast we have come. But condense, if you will, the 50,000 years of man's recorded history in a time span of but a half a century. Stated in these terms, we know very little about the first 40 years, except at the end of them, advanced man had learned to use the skins of animals to cover them. Then about 10 years ago, under this standard, man emerged from his caves to construct other kinds of shelter. Only five years ago, man learned to write and use a cart with wheels. Christianity began less than two years ago. The printing press came this year. And then less than two months ago, during this whole 50-year span of human history, the steam engine provided a new source of power. Newton explored the meaning of gravity. Last month, electric lights and telephones and automobiles and airplanes became available. Only last week did we develop penicillin and television and nuclear power. And now, if America's new spacecraft succeeds in reaching Venus, we will have literally reached the stars before midnight tonight. Those who came before us made certain that this country rode the first waves of the Industrial Revolution, the first waves of modern invention, and the first wave of nuclear power. And this generation does not intend to founder in the backwash of the coming age of space. We mean to be a part of it. We mean to lead it. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas 
We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And before the decade was out, man did go to the moon. That is 1969 Apollo 11 mission. So again, when you think about it in that historical sense of generation, people, achievement, and what all of this signifies, it is the achievement of the Apollo man. And then the month later, we see who descends on Woodstock. Woodstock now historically can become the reference point of what sees the Western man you know, incrementally over time. But who were they? This was the boomer generation, right? Who are the boomer generation? People born as was a defined at that time. And I think we still stick to that particular period as a defining character of the boomer generation. People born between 1946 and 1966, that 20-year period, you know. You and I are boomers. Yeah, we, I, I'm a boomer generation. You know, I was born in the 50s. We are the children of the greatest generation and who goes to Woodstock. Who are the children of the greatest generation that it comes to power then as the generational change takes place? Well, the Clintons, the uh, George Bushes, George Bush, uh, Donald Trump, <laughs> Obama, they're all born in this period, you know. So they were, I was a teenager at the Woodstock time, right? And way back in uh, India, I was my generation, th those of us who were tuned on to the West, were listening to the Beatles. I, I remember 1969, I was listening to Sgt. Pepper's band, you know. And in that sense, Beatles exemplify that culture of hippieism, the music, the rock, and everything associated with that. And and what happens at Woodstock, you know, it is it is again the exaltation of how how else can I put it? But the animal in us, the beast in us, you know, the complete you know, shedding of every aspect of reason and rationality and celebrating what Dionysus celebrates, you know. Insanity, madness, you know, re represented by free sex and open sex and intoxication with wine and drugs and LSD and marijuana and all of that, you know. It has and to be said, though, Salim, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say it, that out of that period came some fantastic music. Now, I can go back and I was a big Beatle fan, still am. George Harrison. I mean, George Harrison's almost every single one of his tunes is about reincarnation and Hinduism, if you, if you read the subtext, and his Maharishi Mahashogi type of teachings. And if you go back and look at the lyrics now, when I do that, I have to cringe somewhat at the infantile nature of some of the, the lyrics, it, you know, like John Lennon's Imagine. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, imagine that all you want, but it's not going to put bread on your table. <laughs> And, and the man was a genius, a musical genius. And all of those people who played at Woodstock gave us some fantastic tunes and melodies and, and uh, entertainment. But the philosophy behind what they were trying to preach in most cases was the Dionysus type of philosophy of let's all just go back to nature and sing Kumbaya. Nature will provide. And this is what we're seeing with um, the anti-oil type of revolt 
the, the Extinction Rebellion, Revolt Against Humanity and Modernity. We're seeing Woodstock played out writ large all over the West as people like a David Suzuki chaining himself to a tree or people sticking their hands with super glue on the, on the road and sitting in front of cars trying to somehow put the genie of modernity back in the bottle. I, I'm digressing a bit, but I just wanted to say that um, some good came out of that Woodstock generation, and that is a, a great amount of entertainment. What came out of that Woodstock generation, or you go back in time, you know, Mozart, for instance, you know, um, who was in a sense a Dionysian man, if we, if we stick to that dichotomy between Apollo and Dionysian, then yeah, Mozart and all of that, you know, poets and in that sense, artists. But even in art, even in music, there is a great demand for discipline, you know. I mean, music is not sound. Music is, again, well put. Uh, tonality, melody, harmony, and all of that that brings together. Same as poetry. Pure poetry is not just a collage of words, but it's hard work. You know, there is a whole issue of rhythm, of beats and rhyme and so on. Medic, pedic, zedoblik, orphic, morphic, dorphic, Greek. Ad hoc, ad lock, and quid pro quo. So little time. Ha <laughs> ha, so much to know. Look, can you tell us where we're at? A true Socratic query, that. Oh, yeah. I know the bully shears are you. Who? Ah, who indeed am I? Who? Eminent physicist, polyglot classicist, prize-winning botanist, hard-biting satirist, talented pianist, good dentist, too. <laughs> Lousy poet. Must you always talk in rhyme? <laughs> if I spoke prose, you'd all find out. I don't know what I talk about. There must be a word for what he is. He's a real nowhere man Sitting in his nowhere land
go somewhere. What about him? He's happy enough going round in circles. Ah, oh, poor little fella. I don't know. Ringo's just a sentimentalist. Ah, oh, look at him. Can't he come with us? Hey, uh, Mr. Boo, you can come with us if you like. You mean you'd take a nowhere man? Yeah, come on, we'll take you somewhere. My name is Samson. Welcome to the underground. So we're not prisoners here? You're guests, the Rad Rats. This is all we could save from the Oracle book burners, but it's a start, and there are more like this every day. We've got hidden labs and libraries all up and down the coast. Big O thinks he's got everything on rails, but the morning he's gonna wake up and smell the napalm. What about the Rationalist Party? You with them? Well, their minds are in the right place, but their hearts could use a little help. The only real change will come through revolution. A lot of that going around. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. But I think back to Rand and back to this whole issue we're dealing with, you know, the Green New Deal, the whole uh, movement against uh, CO2. You talk about high oil. It is the whole hydrocarbon economy, you know, this last 120 years that we have built, man has built. Of course, it is Western civilization that has built, that has gone from railroads, you know, spanning continents to sending man to the moon. And what Rand was pointing out in her two essays or in the collection of essays in that book, The Primitive Revolution, I think the word primitive is very emphatic over here, should be taken into account. And the essay in there, the anti-industrial revolution, it is man, the Dionysian man, is rejecting industry. Rejecting industry for what? To going back to his primitive state of life, as you say, you know, there was, there's the world where nature will provide you, which nature was ideal, nature was perfect, man was completely in harmony with nature, and there was no want. And so let's put it on the table. What we are dealing with is Marxism. Marxism pretends to be rational science. Marx had discovered the secret to the world in terms of economics, in terms of how to bring about a situation when man can once again be in unity, his reason can be in unity with nature, right? And so, as Marx himself says, you know, I mean, there's so much of Marx that one can cite, but, you know, his famous statement on Thesis and Feuerbach, his, I think it was the 11th thesis, where he says, philosophers have interpreted the world, the task is to change it, right? And to change it to what? So, communism. What is communism, you know? So, communism is the highest stage of development of technology that takes man back to nature. The first stage was primitive communism. Man was in nature. Man did what he wanted to do without being 
alienated. I mean, the whole idea of alienation that is in Marx, of course, it is in Freud, but in Marx, the alienation of is the man who works and toils and labors, you know. So man who was in primitive communism was a hunting, gathering man. You know, he hunted, he fished, he he did what he did to satisfy his need. He was not alienated from nature. He was completely happy with nature and it was perfect. So it was primitive communism. But then with the development of property, with the development of technology in its most primitive kind, but as it evolves over time, man's labor is alienated from man. That is, man becomes an alienated human being from his surrounding. Man becomes a tool of what emerges ultimately capitalism and capitalism totally alienates man from his surrounding because all that ultimately the capitalism arrives at in the various stages primitive communism slave society serfdom and then the, the bourgeoisie and capitalism is ultimately the working man has nothing he only survives by selling his labor his labor is expropriated by the capitalist that is the source of the wealth you know, that's the secret that Mark has discovered. And now what has to do again, capitalism lays the stage where now all the needs of man can be fulfilled from each according to his ability, as Marx says, to each according to his need. The fullness of capitalism, that is the science and technology development, which is the polo man has brought about, you know, it is a hard work, it is toil and brings about a civilization that can now deliver everything to man. And all that man has to do now is do that revolution and blow it up, you know, and that will take man back to nature that alienation will be over, he will be reconciled, you know. So I find that ultimately Marx is a Dionysian man. He rejects it. He wants to take man back. Of course, he doesn't talk about in practical terms of what happens. I mean, here it is. He's a mid-19th century man. When capitalism is developing rapidly, we're going from the man who is laboring in the field to man that can harness energy from nature, plus the wind power. But the biggest breakthrough in the Industrial Revolution is the development of steam power, steam engine, right? Coal, and so on. And so Marx is watching this, and Marx is writing about it. The next stage that will come will be the revolution in technology with the use of hydrocarbon fuel, the development of it, the internal combustion engine, and that is going to transform everything, is going to bring about the making of the modern world that we arrive at. But for Marx, you know, all of this is simply the alienation of man by those people who are exploiting man, the, the, the vulgar capitalists, and that has to be destroyed. And so this be, remains a theoretical construct. He doesn't tell what the people who follow Marx will do, which is to transit from capitalism to this imaginary state of utopia where man will be reconciled with nature. His alienation will end. There will be no selfishness. Marx is talking about all that binds man as an alienated being to the structure of capitalism, that is marriage, family, and all of that relationship, religion, these are to hold man down. 
And all of this has to be burst aside, you know. So he's against family, he's against marriage, he's against religion. I mean, what does he say about religion in that famous statement of his? He says religion is the sigh of the oppressed creatures, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of the soulless condition. It is the opium of the people. Yeah, these are Marx's words, you know. So all of this. Whether it is you're listening to Bach's fugue or you're listening to Handel's Messiah, these are the sigh of the oppressed people. This is, you know, we are alienated beings, you know, and we are trying to create a utopia. But Marx knows the secret. The creation of the utopia that everyone wants to desire in that sense or in a religious sense, going back to the, the Garden of Eden from where we have expelled ourselves to an act of rebellion is take over the capitalist world through revolution. But the transition, he doesn't describe. And now we know what the transition, it is the dictatorship of the proletariat. Mm. It is totalitarianism, right? That's what Lenin is. That's what the Bolshevik revolution is. That's who Stalin is and who Mao is and who all of these people are. Marx has seen that in the French revolution, the Jacobins. But he doesn't, you know, get into the ugly side of it, you know. He's still celebrating the possibility that, you know, we will get back into this utopia. Yeah, the thing about uh, Marx and any other Dionysian would be that they deny the reality of man. They deny his rational nature. Exactly. It is unnatural for man to run naked in the woods. He will die. For 50,000 years, I don't know the exact date and time, but man has always used technology. And modern man, Homo sapiens sapiens, have, have always used technology and have survived by it. And if we gave it up, if we stripped off all of our clothes and went into the jungle or the woods, we wouldn't last a week because we rely on our technology. It doesn't matter if it's a sharpened stone to cut a hide from an animal and then use that leather from the animal to tie it together into clothing and, and footwear, or just simply rubbing two sticks together to create fire. It's technology. And we, our nature is to fashion nature, you know, external nature, to suit our needs. That's what we are. That is our nature. And they deny that. They want us back in some sort of, like you say, a Garden of Eden, some fantasy world where we have to suppress our nature as rational beings who craft the world around us to suit our personal fulfillment, our own personal survival instincts and comfort instincts as well. And that's what the Dionysian is. It is a rejection of man as a rational being. When you say a man will not allow himself to be pushed around, the reason why he won't is because he values himself. Now you see, Mickey Spillane and I see man as capable of controlling his own life, choosing his goals, and achieving them. This is what makes us the last of the romantic writers, or rather the first of their return. <laughs> where, where does self-esteem come from, I? How does somebody achieve self-esteem in your estimation? Uh, by knowing, realizing that he has no form of knowledge except his own mind. By realizing that he has to live in reality and that therefore evasion, the evasion of the responsibility of choice and judgment is evil. One achieves self-esteem by total reliance 
and accepting the responsibility of one's own moral and intellectual judgments. You agree with Iron Mickey? Completely. That's the funny part of it. You see, in our in our stories, uh, Irons look like Atlas. She starts on a basic premise and works through. And her hero has, as she said, set a goal. And he achieves it. My character reacts to a given situation. He doesn't create it, but the situation is suddenly there. He reacts to it. And then he sees that it's carried to completion in a way that justice actually has triumphed. It's a, once again, it's a case of good guys over bad guys, to put it simply. Yet, he determines his own course. And he emerges right in the end, too. And do you feel the same way that she does about writers like she mentions Tennessee Williams or J.D. Salinger? Again, strangely enough, we're in complete accord on that, that facet of this. Are you two old friends? No, we met for the first time uh, about two months ago. We were going to spend a few minutes together, and a few minutes lasting into about six hours. And since then, well, yes, we've been good friends. Mickey, how, under what circumstances, did you decide that you wanted to be a storyteller, and how'd you go about it? Well, I've always been a storyteller. When I was a little little boy, I lived with a lot of people who didn't have too many, too much of an imagination. And there was no greater thrill than taking these people with no imagination and setting a stage and setting it properly. But the reason I started to write them was I needed the money. Yes, I know. Why do you keep writing? You don't need the money. Do you enjoy writing? Do you enjoy writing now and about the adventures of Mike Hammer for the same reason that you wanted to scare the kids or show them that you were a bigger guy than you were back in the old days? No, I like storytelling. I enjoy that. But and you're I, not an author. You're a writer. You I'm think. a writer. No, there's a difference. A writer is one whose primary and sole occupation is writing. An author is a... As an author, I say the difference is that a writer will make money. An author takes a chance on it. A writer can write consecutive things, and they will be good. An author may have a one-shot, maybe two, but that's not their primary source of occupation. And you can read into a book whether this person is a writer or an author. Are you reading for fun? Did it entertain you? If it was really solid entertainment and that person can continue to write, you're probably reading the works of a good writer. And when, how, where did you start to write? Well, I decided to be a writer at the age of nine. Really? Consciously. And uh, I was making up stories long before that. But at nine, I realized that this was the profession of a writer and decided that that would be my profession. Now, the reason I started making up stories is that I discovered in magazines for children, that stories about people could be much more exciting, much more interesting than the kind of children or adults that I saw around me. I wanted something better. I liked the idea of projecting, ma making real the kind of people and events that I could admire. My motive was I wanted to look up. I don't like to look down. I don't like to despise people. I don't like to feel contemporary. I wanted people I could admire. That's what I wanted to create. That was my motivation. You found nobody around you to admire? Uh, not at that time. Do except you... in fiction stories. Except in some fiction. Whom do you admire? Among living, living people here in the United States or around the world, who are the two or three human beings whom you most admire in the world today? I... Well, I admire Mickey Spillane as a writer. I may not agree with him about many things, but yeah. as... 
other Pure public... literary skill, at literary technique, and I underscore literary, not merely entertainment, as high literature, Mickey, I admire Mickey's fame, of public figures, of figures known to the public, no budget today, but I can promise you that there will be a few in a few years. But there's no human being on the face of the earth whom you admire today? As a full personality, no. I can admire certain traits or aspects of many different characters, but as a person, as a symbol of human greatness, no. Well, why is the world in such a state that there isn't one living human being whom you can point to and say, that's a fella? Because in the present state of our culture, if they exist, they would be underground. They would not rise. They would not make themselves known, or at least, it would be made extremely difficult for them. They would not be the fashionable ones. However, as we're changing the philosophy of this culture, they will emerge. And you think we're going to change the philosophy of this culture? Yes. You think that you are an objectivist? I and those who are objectivists, yes. And what is objectivism going to do to our culture, Ayn? Free it. In what sense? In what fashion? If you want me to say it just in the briefest terms possible, because mm. I can't go into long explanation now, it will stop collectivism. It will stop the worship of physical force and brutality. It will bring man back to a civilized view of life, the essence of which is that no man uses physical force against others. Then art, achievement, everything good can be practiced by man and can appear on earth under the rule of brute force, under the rule of a collective to which you are forced to belong, nothing but destruction and mediocrity will surround you. I wish that you would not do that. That is like calling on our location to the smokers. He's got a lot of growing up to do. And if the smokers come down on us, he's as old as he's ever going to get. Why do they hit oil trucks? They're running illegal ICs. ICs? Internal combustions. Motorcycles. They need the crew to refine into gasoline. There must be some sort of a jerry-rigged refinery around here. Again, back to that two archetypes. Not that we are in in a sense, a mix of those two archetypes in different proportion, right? And so one has to repress the other to make meaning and sense out of what is our preferred archetype that we want to be, an Apollo man or a Dionysian man. So in that archetypical sense, a Dionysian man is a mass man. He's intoxicated. I mean, there it was in Woodstock. It is a mass orgy, mm. you know? And if you are in Woodstock, in the company of this mass of humanity engaging in whatever is happening there, and you stand out and say, no, I'm going to be a reasonable human being. I'm going to bring my food. I'll have my tent. I'll, you know, you will be at an odd place. You will not be a Dionysian man, you know? Because ultimately, an Apollo man, a man of reason, that, that Hamlet celebrate, what a piece of work is man, is the end result in himself and in his work, a solitary person. Michelangelo builds the most beautiful 
representation of that in a statue of David, right? It is him casting in stone David. And you look up at David and you see the Apollo man, you know. But the act, the performance, the making that goes into what Michelangelo does cannot be a mass project, you know. Newton's Principia is not a mass project. Einstein's special theory of relativity is not a mass project. He's alone. He's walking through whatever it is, and he's struggling with trying to understand whatever that he's trying to understand of nature and penetrate that secret, you know, out of which comes this modern world that, you know, we have both in the case of Newton, the case of Einstein, you know. And that's again what Freud is pointing out, because what they did is the making of civilization. They did it as individual. They brought it together, you know. Euclid and his geometry, you know, Aristotle and his philosophy. So the Apollo man is not a mass man. What has again has happened is the rise of the Darnetian man is the rise of the mass man. There is no order. There's chaos. Behind this mass man is fascism, is totalitarianism, you know. And also, as you, as you point out, because of entropy, it is a death cult. So Europe is now facing the death cult. It built up this whole new green deal on cheap energy source that Russia provided. But in a fitting, intoxicated mood of their tantrum, they went into this full-spectrum sanction against Russia on Ukraine, defending Ukraine for what? That went against all the principle that the Americans should instinctively have understood or rationally should have understood, that there are red lines that cannot be crossed. So they crossed it, they brought about a war, and now they're going to face the end of what that war means. As they put the full spectrum sanction, the winter is here. Hyperinflation, shortage of fuel, shortage of electric power, they're going to freeze. That's the Dinosian man. That's the death cult. That's entropy they're feeding. So to bring this all together, you know, none of this discussion, none of this thinking through, none of this assessment is taking place in a much wanted media that exists. New York Times won't write about it. Washington Post won't write about it. The Atlantic Monthly, the Canadian, saying there's no discussion. There's no serious questioning in the parliament. And anybody who does that is then deplatformed and removed. Because the Dinosian man cannot engage in a rational discussion. And that's the lesson I found embedded in going back to Ayn Rand's essay from 50 years ago. And I wish some people will pick up Ayn Rand's, this particular volume of essays, which can be easily found if they Google for them, and, and read them and see what a hoax that is being perpetrated by the generation of Woodstock upon their 
children and grandchildren who are coming along. Agreed. Let me finish off, if I could, Salim, by just mentioning the last two paragraphs in this uh, Apollo and Dionysus essay. She says, you have all heard the old bromide to the effect that man has his eyes on the stars and his feet in the mud. It is usually taken to mean that man's reason and his physical senses are the element pulling him down to the mud, while his mystical, supra-rational emotions are the element that lifts him to the stars. This, she says, is the grimmest inversion of many in the course of mankind's history. But last summer, that is August of 69, reality offered you a literal dramatization of the truth. It is man's irrational emotions that bring him down to the mud, Woodstock. It is man's reason that lifts him to the stars, Apollo. Thanks for reviving this, Salim. It's a fascinating discussion. It had elements of everything I'm very much interested in. The Apollo program, space program, Ayn Rand, cosmology, <laughs> politics, <laughs> philosophy. Fascinating. Thank you again for a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. So concludes that portion of Robert's discussion with Salim on the theme of comparing the right to Apollo and the left to Dionysus. You know, it occurs to me that human nature operates on the fundamental understanding that, as Francis Bacon so eloquently expressed it, nature to be commanded must be obeyed. Now, not that I want to start anything at this late point in the show, but consider this symbolism in terms of the left and right polarity. On the right, we have the masculine association with God, the Father. On the left, it's the feminine association with Mother Nature. Does anybody really think these concepts constantly align themselves this way by mere chance? Think again. Unfortunately, as I said before, Mother Nature's out to kill us and did so with great regularity before the advance of modern civilization. Not exactly a motherly association, if you ask me. However, I would also expect that the paternalism suggested in God the Father will be interpreted by those on the left as a form of fascism and by those on the right as the form of order that is based on objective law, wisdom, restraint, and all of the values cited by Salim. Self-restraint is freedom. Restraint by others is tyranny. Hey, did we ever promise that sorting through all this would be easy? Of course not. If we did, we would be Dionysian. And then we'd never be just right, because that takes a lot of work and effort. And it includes all of us making the effort to get together again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Everything will be alright. 1990-20 years from now, the first hippie postmaster general, Timothy Leary Jr., today announced a startling innovation in mail delivery. He has created, now listen gang, he has created an airmail stamp that sniffs its own glue and flies by itself. <laughs>